My family loves Brookfield Zoo. Okay, so ever since my kids were young, we have gone to the zoo on every possible occasion. We're, we're there on holidays, we go on Thanksgiving, we're there when the temperature dips to 10 degrees. Uh, that particular day, there was nobody else in the zoo but us, nobody else fool enough besides us and the animals to be at Brookfield. Uh, but now that I'm a granddad and I've got four grandkids, uh, preschool grandkids, I love to see the zoo through their eyes. So we were there recently. And one of our favorite exhibits is the Living Coast exhibit. It's this building on the edge of uh, Brookfield Zoo. And inside, you'll find animals whose natural habitat is the coast of South America. So you will see a, you know, a big tank of sharks. and You'll see jellyfish. And there's a room full of penguins. But the best part of the exhibit is when you leave. There is a, a sign that instructs you to stand in a certain place. And if you stand there, it says, you're going you're gonna to get hit with a tidal wave. So you stand there and you wait and wait and wait, nothing happens, and all of a sudden you hear this roar coming. And before you know it, whoosh, you, you just get dumped on by this huge wave. Now, the, there's a plexiglass shield that protects you. You don't get wet, but it is an exhilarating experience. My little granddaughter, Charlotte, she started giggling with glee when it happened to her. But here's the thing about that experience. If you're not standing where they tell you to stand, like if you're standing 10 feet away and you're watching the wave come and go, it's just not the same experience. So you, you got to have your feet planted right here to feel like you're getting buried by this wave. Well, today we begin a new seven-week series. It's going to take us right up on through the holidays. And the series is called Experiencing God's Love. Experiencing God's love. And here's something you need to know from the get-go about God's love. If you're not standing in the right spot, so to speak, you won't experience it. You won't experience it. Now, you may believe that there is a deity who loves people. There's a loving God. A lot of people believe that. You may observe people around you who seem to enjoy God's love, experiences of God's love. You may come to church on a weekend and sing about God's love and hear sermons about God's love, but you won't experience it yourself unless you're standing in the right place, unless it's washing over you. So the series is intended to acquaint you with God's love, not only in an informational sort of way, although there's going to be lots of biblical information about God's love in this series, but also in an experiential sort of way. God wants you to experience the full impact of his love in your life. Now, to launch the series today, we're going to take a close look at God's love as a divine attribute. A divine attribute. If you haven't taken the outline from your program yet, I encourage you to fill it in as we go or call it up on your app. The dictionary defines the word attribute as an inherent character, an inherent quality. In other words, love describes who God is. Okay, love is God's inherent character. When we say it's an attribute, it's his inherent quality. Five truths about this attribute I want to note today. Here's number one. God's essence is love. God's essence is love. And I want you to turn with me to the back of your Bible. Okay, the epistle of 1 John, it's right near the end of your Bible. There are three short epistles, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, all written by a very good friend of Jesus, Jesus' best friend, one of his original 12 disciples, the only one who lived to a ripe old age. All the others were killed. They were martyred for their faith in Christ. 
John wasn't killed. He was exiled by the Roman government who wanted to get rid of him because he was a ringleader of the Christian movement. So they banished him to the Isle of Patmos. So John lived to a very old age. And according to church tradition, John was, uh, you know, no pun intended, he was kind of a Johnny One Note. Whenever he spoke to you, he always talked about the same topic, love, God's love, 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 love. That's what you, you always heard from John. And in the epistle of 1 John, he tells us where, where a love for others comes from. He says it comes from God. Okay, God is the source of that love. Look, look at verse 8 of 1 John 4. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. Now, drop down to verse 16. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Now, if you have your own Bible with you, and we like to mark up Bibles around here at Christ Community, just underline the repeating statement in those two verses. God is love. God is love. In other words, his essence, God's very essence is love. Now, let me explain to you why that is so. God is a trinity. How many of you have heard that before? God is a trinity. Which means God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is a three-in-one God. Three persons, but one Godhead. Okay? And, and so theologians have been trying to explain to us for centuries what that means. And we just can't get our minds wrapped around it. However, you can open the pages of Holy Scripture and you could see God's Trinitarian nature described in a number of instances. You could see instances of Father, Son, and Spirit working together or loving each other. Uh, one of my favorite instances is Jesus' baptism. So, so, so God the Father sends Jesus to planet Earth to be the Savior. And Jesus' mission is inaugurated. The, the debut happens at his baptism. I, I want to read a passage to you from Matthew, Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. By the way, every week at Christ Community, as Clayton and I preach, we typically try to draw our sermon from one text. We want to get our arms around one passage of Scripture and squeeze everything we can out of it. But the subject of God's love is so broad, I mean, you find it on every page of the Bible, that today we're going to be skipping around a little bit. So get ready to flip to various passages in your Bible. This is Matthew 3. Verses 16 and 17, Jesus' baptism. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God, for your holy word. As I read it to you, did you spot the three members of the Trinity at work? So you got Jesus, it's his baptism. Okay, and then you got the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, descending on, on Jesus like a dove. He's going to supernaturally empower Jesus in his humanity for his earthly mission. And then you've got the Father. He's the booming voice from heaven who says, this is the Son I love. Okay, so you got all members of the Trinity here. This is the Trinity working together, loving each other. You say, well, that's, that's wonderful, but what, what does this have to do with God's love? Well, simply this, if you don't have a Trinitarian God, you don't have a God whose essence is love. You say, why not? Well, for this reason, before, if, if you have a singular God, then before he created humanity, he didn't have anybody to love. So technically speaking, he wasn't loving before he made us. 
Okay, so thank God he's a trinity. He's Father, Son, and Spirit because that means that from time past, eternal time past, okay, God the Father has been loving God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And God the Son has been loving God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit has been loving God the Father and God the Son. This love has been going on. It means it's part of his essence. There was never a time when God was not loving. Love is who God is. Now, you're listening to this and you're saying, yeah, but does this make any difference to my life? Just learning this heady theology, is there any practical value because God's a trinity, his essence is love? Does this mean anything for my life? Oh, yes. Friends, what this tells me is that the reason God loves me has nothing to do with my lovableness. Okay? God loves me not because of who I am. God loves me because of who he is. It's his essence. God can't stop loving because it's, it's who he is. You following this? That, that's not the way love works among humans, is it? See, our tendency is to love others because of their lovableness. So I love my neighbor because he helped me rake leaves this week. Or I, you know, I love my boss because she gave me a raise. Or you know, I love my friends because they like to hang out with me. I love the coach because he puts me into the game. I love mom because she'll do anything for me. See, I love my pastor because he preaches great sermons. So I slipped that in. All right. You know, I love that little child, that orphan in Haiti that we've adopted and give money toward because they're so, so needy. We love other people because of their lovableness. Our love depends on their lovableness. So when they stop being love, lovable, then our love begins to falter. But that's not the way it is with God. Thank goodness. That's not the way God operates. God's love is not prompted by who we are. God's love is prompted by who he is. So God won't stop loving us when we're unlovable because God's essence is love. He can't stop being who he is. You get it? God, isn't that good news? That God is going to love us regardless because it's who he is, not who we are. Here's a, here's a second truth about this attribute of God. God's name is love. God's name is love. Uh, Sean Combs was in the news this past week because he just changed his name again. Okay, Sean knows how to market himself. He's made $130 million this year. He is a Grammy award-winning rapper. You may have heard his music before. But when he first came on the music scene, he called himself Puff Daddy. And then he changed it to Puff Diddy, and then it became P. Diddy, and then it was just Diddy. And this last week, he tweeted his fans. He said, I'm changing my name again. I want to be called Brother Love. Now, here's, here's the ironic thing about this new name. If you know anything about, you know, about this dude, he's not loving by reputation. This is the guy that gets into brawls and shoot-em-ups in nightclubs and so on. So this is not necessarily a, a reflection of his true identity. However, in Bible times, people's names told you something significant about them. This is especially true of God. So I want to tell you a name by which God prefers to be called. Okay, and we're going to find this, we're going to go to another passage now, in the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, chapter 34. So turn to Exodus 34 with me, and while you're turning, I want to give you some background to this passage. Okay, Moses is now meeting with God at the top of Mount Sinai, and this is the second meeting they've had together. Okay, the first meeting, God had given Moses the Ten Commandments. 
he had chiseled them on stone tablets, two stone tablets for Moses. Now, do you recall the story? Remember what happened to the stone tablets? Okay, after God gives him the Ten Commandments on the, on the stone tablets, Moses has been on the top of the mountain for 40 days with God. He comes down and he hears a party going on in camp when he arrives. And it turns out that in his absence, the people have built a golden calf idol and they're worshiping it. And Moses is infuriating. He throws the stone tablets on the ground and they splinter into pieces. Which, by the way, it's the only time in human history that somebody has broken all Ten Commandments at once. Little pastor humor there. Uh, yeah, you'll use it. You know you will, okay? Uh, so Moses disciplines the people, and now he's got to go back to Mount Sinai for a second visit. He's got to get, get a new two tablets of stone with the commandments on them. And you could just imagine Moses' insecurity as he approaches the top of the mountain because he's thinking to himself, oh my goodness, for all God's given us, he delivers us from slavery in Egypt. He watches over us as we travel toward the promised land. I mean, he's defeated enemy armies many times our size along the way. And how do we treat God? How do we respond with blatant, flagrant idolatry? What is God going to say? You know, maybe God's brought me back up to the top of Mount Sinai to say, Moses, I'm done with you guys. Okay, we're through. You guys want a golden calf to be your God? Go ahead. See how well the golden calf serves you, okay? See how well it protects you and provides for you because I'm through with you losers. So is that what Moses hears from God? And the first thing that God says to Moses is, Moses, I want to tell you my name. I want to tell you my name. This is what I want to be called. Pick it up, Exodus 34, verse 7. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and proclaimed his name. His name is the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord. And now he explains what his name means. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. God says, Mo, you want to call me by name? Call me love. That's my name. I'm a God who abounds in love. I'm a God who maintains my love to thousands. That's what God wants to be known for. His love, his name is love. Number three, third truth about this divine attribute. God's character. God's character is love. Remember our definition for attribute? An attribute is an inherent character, an inherent quality. Well, one of God's attributes is love. But love is not his only attribute. You know, there is more to God's inherent character than love. What other attributes come to your mind when you think of God? Maybe his power or his wisdom, his holiness, his creativity, his mercy. Most of us, if put on the spot, we could probably come up with a dozen or so attributes of God. But here's the deal. When you open the pages of the Bible, you discover more than 250 attributes, names, or titles by which God goes. In fact, we put these together in a little brochure that you could pick up at the information counter at any one of our campuses if you want to use this. The attributes of God, you'll find all 250 listed with a Bible reference next to every one. I use this regularly in my prayer time. I use it in the prayer time with my men's community group. 
I mean, just recently, we passed it around and we said, hey, pick an attribute out. We're, we're all going to pray. You're going to praise God for that attribute. You're going you're to tell him everything you can think of associated with that particular attribute. And it was a rich time of prayer. So you've got this little list of 250. Now, if you look in the Bible itself, okay, there's a book. The Bible's made up of 66 books, but there's one in particular that is known for all the attributes of God it describes. What is that one book that has more attributes of God than any other? Do you know? Call it out. I hear you starting to say it, but you're nervous. You don't want to be wrong. Psalms, okay? The book of Psalms. The book of Psalms has a lot to say about God's attributes, who he is, which is why, by the way, in our Bible-savvy reading schedule, so many of you are following, hundreds of you are following along, and every day you're reading through the Bible with the rest of us. We've got a, a four-year schedule, take you through the Bible in four years. Have you noticed that almost every weekend, three out of four weekends a month, we take you to the book of Psalms? Why? Because we want you to get to know who God is. That's where you find all his attributes. And so not surprising, you know, this is where we find mention of God's love repeatedly. So let me read to you some of these references. Psalm 13, verse 5, the psalmist says, I trust in your unfailing love. Psalm 17, verse 7, a page over, God, show me the wonders of your great love. Psalm 57, verse 10, your love reaches to the heavens. Psalm 63, verse 3, your love is better than life. God's love is better than life. Psalm 90, verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. Your love satisfies that we may sing for joy. You get the idea. God's character is love. This is one of his chief attributes. Now, as, as I mentioned a moment ago, it's not God's only attribute. And, and sometimes people will make... Uh, inaccurate statements about who God is based on the fact that the only attribute they know of his is his love. They don't know about the 249 other attributes, okay? But it's important that we consider those other attributes as well because they shape our understanding of God's love. For example, the Bible tells us that God is just. So justice is one of his attributes. And one aspect of justice means that wrongdoing is punished. You know, a just person punishes wrongdoing. So imagine this, if you would. You step into a courtroom. There's a judge sitting behind his bench, and a prisoner is brought in. Okay, and the, the, the case, you know, is uh, they go through the case, and he's pronounced guilty. And the sentencing time comes, but there's a wrinkle in this imaginary scenario. Here's the wrinkle. The guilty person in front of the judge is the judge's son. So how many of you think it's okay if the judge looks at his son and he says, son, I love you so much, I'm going to let you go? See, that judge wouldn't remain on the bench, would he? There would be an outcry. Remove that guy. A judge is supposed to be just. Sometimes I hear people say, well, God, you know, he's not going to do anything about it. He's going to automatically forgive my sins because he loves me. But God must also be just. He's not only a loving God, he's a just God. Now that presents God with a conundrum, doesn't he? How can God be both just and loving at the same time? We're going to talk about this next week. We're going to devote the entire weekend sermon next week to talk about how God does it. So come back, but I can't leave you hanging for seven days. I've got to give you just a sentence or two here. The way God reconciles his justice and his love is through his son, Jesus Christ. 
See, Jesus is sent to the planet so that he could die on the cross to take the penalty our sins deserve. The penalty for sin is death. If you defy God, who's the giver of life, and you thumb your nose at him and you go your own way, you pay for it with death, the Bible says. You disconnect from the giver of life, you die. But Jesus took the death you and I deserve when he died on the cross. He paid the penalty so that God could be completely just and yet demonstrate his love for us at the same time. Isn't that spectacular? So the more you know about these other attributes of God, the fuller understanding you'll have of who he is, and it will correct any misunderstandings you have about his love. Let me talk about one other attribute in this regard. This is a real heartwarming example. The the Bible repeatedly describes God's attribute of omniscience. Now, omniscience means that God is all-knowing. God knows everything. God knows everything about you. Now, that could be kind of a scary attribute, right? That God knows everything about about your week. God knows every every time this past week that you you cussed or you lusted or gossiped or turned a blind eye to the, the poor. God knows every time this past week you cheated or you spent too much money on yourself or you drove over the speed limit or you failed to pray when you had an opportunity to pray. God knows all that. In fact, we caught it on video. We're going to show a video of you right now. On the... <laughs> See, you're saying this is not a good thing to be known like this. This makes me feel a bit uncomfortable, a bit ashamed, a bit unlovable. J.I. Packer, a contemporary theologian, he's written a best-selling book called Knowing God. And in his book, he says God's omniscience, God's all-knowingness actually gives him great comfort. Say, great comfort? Listen to what Packer writes. He says, what matters supremely is not the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it that God knows me, and he knows me as one who loves me. There's no moment when his eye is off me or his attention is distracted. There is unspeakable comfort in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. And now we get to to my favorite part of this quote. Listen to this. He says, there's tremendous relief in knowing that God's love for me is utterly realistic because it's based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me so that no discovery can now disillusion God about me in the way that I'm so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. You hear what Packer's saying? Oh my goodness, this brings me such comfort because I do jerky things and I say jerky things and, and, and I think awful things. And, 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 and when that happens to me on a daily basis, I get so disillusioned about myself. How could I do that, think that, say that? Oh, what a comfort it is to know that there is a God who knows every bit of that in my life and loves me anyway. This God knows me intimately, and yet he's chosen to put his love on me. See how knowing God's other attributes shapes our understanding of his love. God is love, plus a couple hundred other attributes. So read the book of Psalms, pick up an A to Z list of his attributes at the information counter. Number four, here's a fourth truth about this divine attribute. God's actions are love. His actions are love. Now, as long as I'm quoting J.I. Packer, I want to tell you something else that I learned from his best-selling book, Knowing God. Packer says that in the ancient world, 
This idea of a God who loves, a God who loves sinful, stubborn, rebellious people was so radical that the writers of the New Testament chose a seldom used Greek word, the word being agape, to describe God's love. Listen to what Packer writes. He says, the Greek and Roman world of New Testament times had never dreamed of such love. Its gods were often credited with lusting after women, but never with loving, loving sinners. And the New Testament writers had to introduce what was virtually a new Greek word, agape, to express the love of God as they knew it. So the, the, the gods of the ancient world lusted, but they knew nothing about loving people, especially sinful people like us. Here, here's something else they never did. They never served people. In fact, if you read most pagan mythology, what you'll discover is that the gods created people for the sake of having slaves, slaves to wait on them hand and foot. That's, that's why they created. Now, it's true the Bible tells us that we ought to serve God, but the Bible also tells us amazingly God loves to turn the tables. He loves to serve us. In fact, this is one of the ways that God expresses his love for us in doing acts of compassion on our behalf. I want you to turn to the, the book of Psalms, Right in the middle of your Bible, Psalm 103, I want to read a passage to you. And as you're turning, let me, let me point out that in contemporary culture, love is most often thought of as a feeling, right? Okay, when you listen to a love song on the radio, it's full of feeling talk. People talk about falling into love, or conversely, you know, they, they break up because oh, I fell out of love. And, and so in, in contemporary terms, love is just this emotional rush that comes and goes, and we have no control over it. But the Bible talks about love primarily in terms of actions. The Bible talks about love primarily in terms of actions. We love other people by doing certain things for them. Love is choice after choice after choice to act in compassion toward others. And friends, this is how God loves us. He doesn't just feel warm, fuzzy feelings toward you and me. He acts on our behalf. Let me read to you just the, uh, the opening few verses of Psalm 103. And by the way, read the whole psalm sometime on your own. It's filled with God's loving acts on our behalf. But it begins with these words. Praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul. And forget not all his benefits. Like what? Well, he forgives all your sins. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with love and compassion. He satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. He works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He makes known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. We read one thing after another which God does to show us his love. Because love is action. Now, we could say more about this, but actually our whole series is about this. So you're going to hear seven weeks worth of what God does to prove to you he loves you. Number five, fifth truth. God's commandment is love. Now, the ancient rabbis, they sat down and they counted all the commandments in the Old Testament. And they came up with 600 and some commandments. And so when Jesus walked this earth, his antagonists, the religious leaders of the day, they figured they could stump Jesus 
Yeah, they played this little game of stump the rabbi. They, rabbi Jesus, which is the greatest commandment, they asked him. They figured he could never answer. They're over 600. What's he going to say? Jesus, without hesitation, he said this, and Mark captures this in Mark 12, verse 30. Jesus said, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's the greatest commandment. Love God. Love God. Now, what does that have to do with God loving me? Okay, this, this is a series called Experiencing God's Love, right? Now I'm concluding this sermon by taking you to the greatest commandment, which says you ought to love God. What's the connection? What, what's the connection between me loving God and God loving me? Because there is a connection, and here it is. The connection is the more we love God, the more we'll experience His love for us. Let me say it again and pay close attention because I'm going to correct a wrong impression in just a moment here. Okay? The more we love God, the more we experience God's love for us. Now, I did not say the more we love God, the more God will love us. Because the fact of the matter is you can't make God love you any more than he already does. He loves you to the max. What I'm saying is the more you love God, the more you'll experience God's love for you. So there are two conditions I want to give you. If you want to experience God's love to the max, there are two conditions you need to meet. Here's condition number one. Condition number one, surrender your life to Jesus Christ and become God's child. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ and you'll become God's child. Okay, right now as we're sitting in this auditorium and people are sitting at three other campuses of ours, and some are watching online. Right now, you are surrounded by Wi-Fi waves, radio waves. Did you know that? So my question is, are you experiencing those waves right now? Well, it all depends. If you've got an electronic device in your hand and it's turned on, and, and you have your Wi-Fi activated, then you're experiencing Wi-Fi. But if, if you don't have an electronic device on your lap or it's not turned down or you don't have the Wi-Fi activated, then you're not experiencing Wi-Fi. Isn't this interesting? Wi-Fi surrounding you right now, but you may not be experiencing it. God love, God's love surrounds you, friend, but you may not be experiencing it right now. What are the conditions? Condition number one, surrender your life to Jesus Christ and become God's child. Did you know that not everybody is God's child? say, oh, no, we're all God's children. Did you know the Bible never teaches that? The Bible teaches we're all God's creation. But the Bible tells you there's something you need to do if you want to become God's child, a member of his family. John chapter 1, verse 12. Look it up yourself sometime. It says, to all who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How do you get the, the, the right to be called a child of God? You surrender to Jesus. You receive Jesus into your life as your Savior, as your King. So when you do that, you become a part of God's family. And as a child of God, you experience His love at a whole different level. You say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Everybody experiences God's love, right? Child or not a child of God. Believer or not a believer. Christ follower or not a Christ follower. God loves everybody the same. No. No? No, God loves everybody. John 3.16, most familiar verse in the Bible, says God so loved what? 
the world, that's everybody, wouldn't you say, that he gave his one and only son. So God loves everybody, but God loves everybody the same? No, he doesn't, not according to Scripture. And before we look at a Scripture, just stop and think about it for a moment. What about your love for other people? You know, the Bible tells you to love your enemies. The Bible tells you to love your neighbor as yourself. The Bible tells you if you're married to love your spouse. If you've got kids, to love your kids. Let me, let me ask you, do you love everybody the same? See, if I'm doing everything God commands me, if I'm loving my enemies, if I'm loving my neighbors, i got to tell you, I'm still not loving them like I love Sue and my kids. There's a different kind of love that I give to them as members of my family. Friends, it's the same way with God. Throughout the pages of Scripture, you'll find passages where God says, let me tell you about my extraordinary love for those who surrender to Jesus and belong to my family. Okay, one of those passages, one of my favorites, is the end of Romans chapter 8. So if you want to turn there, Romans chapter 8, the closing two verses, the Apostle Paul describes the relentless love that God has for those who are in Christ, those who have surrendered their lives to Jesus. Let me read this to you. Paul says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You want to experience love to the max? God's loving. His love doesn't stop, but if you want to experience it, friend, you need to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. You need to become God's child. And when you're in Christ, you'll experience this relentless love that will never let you go. And nothing will come between you and God's love. That's condition number one. Condition number two, if you want to experience God's love to the greatest degree, then walk in obedience to God's word. Walk in obedience to God's word, starting with the greatest commandment, which is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, there's a half-truth that's floating around out there I want to warn you about, okay? Assuming that you've surrendered your life to Christ, you're now a member of God's family, you're a recipient of God's maximum love for you, the half-truth goes like this. People say, and God won't love you any more if you obey him, and he won't love you any less if you disobey him. You heard that before? True or false? It's a trick question. It's actually true. It's true. God won't love you any more if you obey him. If you're his child, he won't, won't love you any less if you disobey him. I love my kids whether they obey me or disobey me. Love them the same. Okay, so God's love is a constant. It's not based on my performance, my obedience, or my disobedience. However, that's only half the truth. Let me tell you the other half of the truth. If you disobey God, even though he won't love you any less, you will experience his love. You, rather, you will not experience his love like you would if you obey him. Let me say that again, especially because I stumbled on it. If you disobey God, even though he won't love you any less, you won't experience his love like you would if you obey him. You following this? You say, where do you get that? Well, I get it from Jesus. Okay, listen to the words of Jesus in John chapter 15, verses 9 and 10. Jesus says, if the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. 
Now remain in my love. Stop there for a moment. Jesus says, I love you, but you got to remain in that love. In other words, you might not remain in it. So how do you remain in his love? If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commands and remain in his love. You, you follow what Jesus is, is saying here? Let, let, let me sum it up for you. God's love is a constant. God's love flows like a steady river. Okay, you can't stop that river of God's love. However, you could choose to step out of it through disobedience. And if you're stepping over here, if you're not in the place where God's love is flowing, then you're not getting drenched with his love like you could be if you were walking in obedience to him. You following this? So how do we stay in the, in the river? How do we remain in God's love? Remain in my love, remain in my love. Jesus says it three times, remain in my love. How do we do it? The verse says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Friends, when God's word says, live in sexual purity, and we live in sexual purity, we experience God's love to a greater degree. You know, when, when God's word says, look out for the orphan and the widow and the, and the immigrant, and we look out for the orphan and the widow and the immigrant, touchy subject in today's political culture, but when we do that, we experience God's love to a greater, greater degree. When God's word says, give generously to the Lord's work, and we give generously to the Lord's work, we experience God's love to a greater degree. The love is constant, but our experience of it fluctuates. When God's word says, share the good news of Jesus with all your friends and your family, and we do that, we share the good news of Jesus with everybody, we experience God's love to a greater degree. Some of you had this experience last weekend, right? At, at Rebecca Gregory, the inspiring stories, I know because I met some of your friends. People at St. Charles were in, in, introducing me to friends they brought, and I know it happened at other campuses as well. And, and 66 Next Steps packets walked out the doors of our four campuses, people who surrendered to Jesus last weekend. And some of you... For some of you, that was a friend of yours, and you were not only overjoyed for them, you had a whole new experience of God's love. It was like, oh, this couldn't get any better. The more we walk in obedience to God, the more we experience his love. So, so if you read God's word daily and you discover his commands and you say, how can I put this into practice? You will experience his love to a greater degree. And if you neglect God's, God's word and you don't obey his commands. God will not love you any less, but you will, experience, you will forfeit the experience of his love in your life. And, and can I be just real straightforward with you as we, we draw things to a close? Some of you today are not experienced the full measure of, of God's love for you, either because you don't meet condition number one. You've never surrendered your life to Jesus. So at this point in time, you're not yet a child of God. You, you haven't experienced the maximum love that God has for family members. Or number two, there's some area of blatant disobedience in your life, and you know exactly what it is. And until you get that fixed, until you repent of it, until you say, God, would you forgive me and help me live in, in a different way, you're not going to experience the maximum impact of God's love in your life.
So this series is all about experiencing God's love. We know his love is out there. Do you want to experience it for yourself? Consider those two conditions as we bring things to a close here. Now, in just a moment, we're going to bring our gifts and our offerings to the Lord. It's one of the ways we say to him, I love you. And so experience his love in in return to a greater degree. He loves you whether you give or not. But you'll experience his love as you become a generous person. Okay, And then after we gather our, or as we're gathering our gifts, we're going to be singing a song of praise to God that reminds us that he's a God who stands with open arms and says, come, to, run to me. I want to love on you, son. So let's sing from our hearts, and then our campus pastors will close in prayer. <laughs>